This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. The blood of Jesus cleansed me from all unrighteousness because it was Him that paid the payment that was due. We look at this and we understand that what he is, what Paul is helping us to understand is, again, our position in Christ. Once we come to Christ, once we are of the redeemed, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are redeemed, there is no condemnation. Can I make that any clearer to you? Pastor David will be teaching us that Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are supposed to be living as though we're saved. We no longer need to wallow in our guilt. We can go to God and call Him Abba, Father. Since we've been set free from sin and death, sin no longer has power over us. We're free to love Christ and obey Him because He first loved us. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1, with part one of our message entitled, Walking in the Spirit. Well, let's look at verse 1. In verse 1, we see these words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus took my condemnation upon himself. Because he paid the price that I owed. Because the blood of Jesus cleansed me from all unrighteousness. Because it was him that paid the payment that was due. We look at this and we understand that what he is, what Paul is helping us to understand is again our position in Christ. Once we come to Christ, once we are of the redeemed, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are redeemed, there is no condemnation. Can I make that any clearer to you? You need to understand that, beloved, because the enemy is going to whisper in your ear continually. Every time that you stumble, every time that you fall, the fact that, oh no, God doesn't love you anymore. No, you don't have salvation. Please understand that our salvation is by faith in Christ not by our works. Do you remember the story? And you don't need to look there. You can write it down and look in a moment. But in John chapter 8, Jesus was there and then the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought the woman who was caught in adultery before him. And as that woman who was caught in adultery was thrown before Jesus' feet, they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. What are you going to do with her, Jesus? And they were putting, a, putting him between literally a rock and a hard spot because they were ready to stone her. You know the story how Jesus, as he was looking at her and looking at the men, he began drawing in the sand. And we don't know what he was drawing or writing in the sand. Perhaps he was writing the name of each one of those men and perhaps a personal sin behind each one as he was writing. We don't know, but we do know this, that in a moment he looked at those men and he says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. I really believe that if you and I were there, the silence of the moment would have been interrupted by a plunk. Plunk, 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 as each of these men began dropping their rocks. Because the scripture says that from the oldest down to the youngest, each one left. Because I believe they understood they were sinners and they could not cast that first stone. But 
This is the important thing. This is what I want you to understand. Jesus then looked at the woman. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And as she looked up and she says, well, no man, Lord. And then Jesus spoke to her and said, and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You need to understand the significance of that statement. Jesus did not say to her, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you, therefore go and sin no more. Now, go and live like you're forgiven. Live like you're one of the redeemed, because I don't condemn you. It would have been a whole different passage if Jesus would have said to her, if you go and sin no more, then I will not condemn you. Okay, you're guilty, but I'm going I'm to give you lenience here. And if you live the rest of your life, Without sin, then I'll pardon you. That's not what he said, beloved. And that's not what he says to you and I. He says, I don't condemn you. Now go and live like you're of the redeemed. That's the responsibility that you and I have. Not in order that we might become the redeemed, but because we are the redeemed. Because of the greatness of God for us. That's why we can look and see, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not of works, but it's the gift of God. We look on in verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This law that he's speaking about, this law of the spirit of life and the law of the sin and death, there is a battle that's going on there, and you need to understand how this all works. There's another law that I want to bring to your attention this morning. That's the law of gravity. You remember Sir Isaac Newton? Remember sitting underneath the tree, the apple tree falls on his head, and all of a sudden he, man, there must be gravity around here. Or somehow he figures out what gravity is all about through this little event happening. And every school uh, child going through learns about this idea and this thought. That somehow working within the Earth's core is this a magnetic force or this field of gravity that draws things down. What goes up must come down. And so we see this law going on. This is an irrevocable law. It does not wear out. Well, we could talk about times and things, but it does not wear out. It's going to be there tomorrow. It's going to be there the day after. The law of gravity is irrevocable. But, but I want to bring to you another law, and it's the law of aerodynamics. And there's a whole different working here in this, in the law of aerodynamics, than the law of gravity. The Aerobus 380 is the largest public aircraft, public transportation aircraft available today. If we look at the Aerobus 380 with both of its decks, we see that it can carry upwards to 853 passengers. That is a lot of people. In the normal run of things, it's 525, but if you take out all of the business class, which is on the upper deck, and all of the first class, which is on the first deck, you can actually cram in there 853 people plus cargo in the bottom cargo hold. Now, that's pretty doggone close to a 1,000 people in one piece of metal that you're going to throw up in the air. That's pretty impressive. Now, you could take, like I said, 
the first class and the business out, fill it with all of those people. But I don't think you want to take first class out because when you look at first class at the Aerobus, it's pretty plush. It's very, very nice. Now, there's only 16 seats in this particular layout that the Aerobus has, but it's very, very nice. You know what? When we look at all of this, we look at the the uh, the Aerobus, the, the size, the dynamics of it. One of the other things you need to understand: that this plane is huge. It's monstrous. It's 240 feet long. Now, a couple of weeks ago, they played the Super Bowl in a stadium that, from goalpost to goalpost, was what 300 feet long, 100 yards, 300 feet. That plane could sit barely in there with just a few feet on, on each end of it. But you know what? It wouldn't be able to fit in the, in the stadium itself because the wingspan of that plane is 261 and a half feet wide, a bit wider than it is long. It's monstrous. It takes 20 wheels on the landing gear for this thing to be able to land. And when it has full takeoff capacity or full weight it takes 9,000 feet to get this baby up in the air. Now, that's almost two miles, folks. It's huge. How can it outdo the law of gravity? Because it has thrust, because it has lift. And it can outdo the law of gravity. When we look at the, the thrust that it has, it has four Rolls-Royce engines, and those Rolls-Royce engines get about 80,000 pounds of thrust apiece. So it is powerful enough, and it's designed as such to be able to outdo the law of gravity. But let me ask you this, church. Does it delete the law of gravity? No. Does it do away with the law of gravity? No, the law of gravity is still there. And in the same way, the law of the spirit of life outdoes the law of sin and death. Does not do away with it. The law is still there. The law of God still remains. It does not change. But Christ came and fulfilled the law in order that we might have the power, that thrust, to be able to outdo that law of sin and death in our lives. And for you and I to live under the law of the Spirit, we're able to soar above the destruction and the death that the law would bring to our lives in the flesh. And I don't know about you, but I'd just soon fly first class even in this flight that we're going in, this flight of grace. There's not very many fly first class in that one, and I think that that's a lot like the church today. I don't think that there's very many believers who are flying first class in our walk of faith, in the walk of grace. Most of us are flying economy, and some, unfortunately, are just down in the cargo hold. They're not enjoying the flight at all, but they're going to get there. God wants you to be able to enjoy this walk of faith. God wants you to enjoy and to know the victory that's yours in the law of the Spirit that He comes and brings to you. In verse 3, He speaks about for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Do you see now how and where that phrase would fit in? In verse 4, it speaks about this righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's not because we're walking by the Spirit, but it's the fact that we are. He says that this righteous requirement is done because we are of those who do not walk according to the flesh. We're of those who walk according to the Spirit, the Spirit of God within us. And he goes to drive that home even further as we continue on. In verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And we're going to talk about this idea of death a little bit here in a moment. But when we look at this, he says, to be carnally minded is death. This isn't the death of, again, the separation of our redeemedness. We're not going to lose the redemption. What this is, the death of the joy, death of the fellowship, death of the very presence of the working of God in our life. We lose that when we become carnally minded. We look at what he says here, and even in verse 7 and 8, it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a twofold thing here. Outside of Christ, there's no way that I'm going to please God. I cannot do enough good works that God is going to be pleased with me. I have to come by faith to receive Christ. But even you and I, when we are redeemed, if we're walking in the flesh, if we're obeying the flesh, we can't please God in the midst of that either. God is pleased and God is delighted when you and I are walking in fellowship and in harmony and in obedience to Him. He may bring correction. He may bring even discipline into the life of the redeemed in order to bring us back into that obedience. Because there are times in our lives that we will fall. I'm reminded of the story that uh, I've heard long ago. The temptation is like the idea of birds flying overhead. You and I can't keep the birds from flying over our heads. But this one thing we can do, we can keep them from building a nest in our hair. We don't have to allow them the opportunity to stop and plant within our lives. Temptation is going to come into every life. On a continual basis, our flesh, the world, the enemy of our souls, comes and brings temptation to us. What you do with that temptation is the difference between being in obedience and being in the will of God and not being in the will of God. If you allow that temptation to nest within your lives, beloved, that's where sin comes in. Now he goes on here in verse 9. He says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You need to understand this verse 9 is probably the key passage of chapter 8. Because again, this is the dividing mark that speaks about those who are redeemed versus those who are lost. He says, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So the question I ask you this morning is, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? 
If he does, then you are of the redeemed. If he does not, then you are lost. His promise is, and the declaration is, and the firmness of the statement is, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not of his. You're either redeemed or you're lost. Either the Spirit of God dwells within you or he does not. And he dwells in you by faith in the completed work of Christ. And he does not dwell in you if you've never come to that point. No matter how many good works, how many good deeds, no matter what you do. In verse 10, he speaks, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Do you understand the power of this verse? It's the very power of the resurrection that's working in your life and in mine. That if God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, which he was then he's powerful enough to work within your life, to give you life, to work in your life, to be pleasing to him, to work in your life, those things that are going to honor him, to work in your life, obedience, when we are simply submitted to him. Beloved, God has the power to do that in your life. Are you willing to submit your life to him? He raised Jesus from the dead. Do you think working and moving and bringing life into your mortal body is any big deal for him? He can do that. And it's the hope of that. It's the understanding of that that's going to give you and I strength in our lives. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I'm not a debtor to the flesh, but I am a debtor. I am a debtor to the grace of God and the love of God. I owe my life to God because of his great love for me. He sent Christ to die for me in order that I might live in him. I am a debtor to that. But what do I owe the flesh? I don't owe the flesh. Zip. Zilch. Nada. I owe it nothing. And yet it keeps coming back to me. It says, hey, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? I owe the flesh nothing. It's Christ who has accomplished all things in my life. And I need to understand that. And that's the love that needs to drive my life to obedience and my desire to be pleasing to my king. Verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, beloved, looking at it in the context of all that he says there, He's not saying you're becoming unredeemed. He does not say that the redeemed will be lost, but there will be death that will enter into your life. Death of the joy, death of the fellowship, death of the power, death of the working of God and the plan of God in your life. Because if you and I continue to live our lives in disobedience, God will not come down and with puppet strings work and force and move you to be obedient to him. Oh, he may bring correction. He may bring instruction. He may bring discipline. But he will not force you to be obedient. And they'll be literally the walking dead. Oh, I'm born again, but I have absolutely no joy. I'm born again, but I have no power in my life. I'm born again, but I have no presence, the feeling of God in my life. If you've come by faith to Christ, and yet you don't walk in obedience to Him, 
You are the saddest creature of all creation. Because it seems that there is almost a greater hope for those who are lost than even for that one who knows Christ and yet continues to live a life in disobedience. How would there be a hope? Because at least that one who is lost can be found. But if you continue to deny the work of the Holy Spirit and that wooing and the calling of your spirit, the rest of your life you live without that power. You live without that knowledge. Saved, though as by fire, is what the Scripture speaks about. Beloved, within each heart and life of every believer, there is this eternal fight that goes on. The flesh against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. That battle is going on, working over and over daily within your life. Who's going to win that battle today? Will it be the spirit in your life? Or will it be the flesh in your life? It reminds me of a story, an old proverb or something that I heard long, long ago, where the man says that within me there are two dogs that battle. There's the good dog and there's the bad dog. And you know what? It's the dog that I feed that will win. The dog that I feed will win. And in the same way, that battle of the flesh and the spirit within you, the one that you feed will win. If you're continually feeding your life in the flesh, if you're continually involved in the things of the world and the fleshly nature, then guess who's going to win in your life? Guess who you're going to look like? Are you going to look like your father in heaven? No. You're going to look like a child of the world. You're going to look like the lost. But if you're continually feeding the things of the Spirit, if you're within your word, if you're spending time with prayer, if you're in the fellowship with other believers, if you're living your life in obedience and you're feeding the spiritual man within you, then he will continually be victorious in your life because, the, because sin no longer has dominion over you. Paul gave us that. We understand that sin no longer has dominion. And the only time that it gets the upper hand is when we continue to feed the flesh. But if we don't feed the flesh, we start seeing the victory of Christ in our life. That's why we can look and we can read these words in verse 14 where it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba. Father, you're a child of God when you come by faith to receive Jesus Christ. What a great opportunity that is. What a great blessing that is to be able to come into the very household of faith, to know God not simply as creator and judge. No, now he becomes my father. And the sweetness and the endearment of that statement that says, Abba, Father, it's a statement, it's a word that you can even hear today over in Israel as small children go running to their fathers and they cry out, Abba, Abba. It's an Aramaic saying that simply says, Daddy. That term of endearment that speaks of the closeness of relationship. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you and I. That we can run into his presence without fear, without trembling, without that, that, that thought that, oh, he's, he's going to smack me again because of my sin. No, he wants us to run to him just as our Abba Father, as our Daddy. What young child just learning to, say, ride a bicycle or even going younger, learning to walk and they fall, they stumble, and they, they hurt themselves. What young child would then, after they hurt themselves, 
go running away from their father. They ought to run, turn and run to him, cry, Daddy, Daddy, I've hurt myself. I've hurt myself. How you and I as believers need to have that same kind of attitude in our walk in Christ. That as we walk, as we stumble, as we fall, rather than staying away from our daddy, we would turn and run to him. Father, I've hurt myself. Know the sweetness of his love toward us. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Open Word. Pastor David will continue verse by verse through the book of Romans next time. It's been said that if a believer were to drop their Bible on the ground, it should fall open to the book of Romans. Why, you might ask? Because this book is packed full of doctrine that we truly need to grasp as believers in Jesus. Or maybe you're listening today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. We encourage you to continue tuning in Monday through Friday as Pastor David shares insights from this book. Pastor David will be teaching through this book with hopes that all those tuning in each day here on The Open Word would either be saved or be encouraged in their salvation. If you're like most people, you probably use a smartphone. Once you subscribe to The Open Word Podcast, you'll always have solid Bible teaching available to you anywhere, anytime. So log on to TheOpenWord.com and subscribe to The Open Word Podcast. And to become our Facebook friend or to follow The Open Word Twitter feed or to access the archive of messages, log on to TheOpenWord.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We invite you to join us again for the next study of Pastor David's teaching through the Book of Romans. That's next time on The Open Word.